Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Tafik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Hello to my fabulous Roots of the Spirit community. Thank you for joining me for today's episode, which I am incredibly excited for. My guest, Kato Momolu, and I have so many different serendipitous connections, it's insane. And I can't wait to dive into our interview. But first, I just wanna welcome any new listeners. Thank you so much for joining in. And for my loyal listeners, I can't thank you enough. Your dedication and support means the world to me, and I really, really appreciate it. I'm super happy because the Roots of the Spirit Facebook page has just reached 1,000 likes. Just as a reminder, tell your family, tell your friends about the Roots of the Spirit podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. As a matter of fact, I found out that my podcast is on iHeartRadio. I thought you had to sign up for that, but hey, it's on there. So you can also listen on iHeartRadio. You can also find it on my website, www.rootsofthespirit.com, and you click on podcasts you can actually listen to the podcast right on your computer or your phone if you like the podcast go over to apple Podcasts and rate and review and leave a comment you can always send me questions comments via the roots of the spirit facebook i'm also on instagram at roots of the spirit i'd love to hear from you so feel free to send me a question comment whatever is on your heart Without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Kato Momolu. Inspired by her African roots, Liberian-born fashion designer and stylist, Kato Momolu is stamping her global brand on fashion-forward women's wear and accessories that celebrate the essence of her rich heritage through the use of traditional and luxury fabrics. A graduate of l'Académie des Couturiers Design Institute in Ottawa, Ontario, Kato relocated to Canada in 1990 following a coup in Liberia a year prior. Kato launched her custom-based line while working as an independent fashion designer in 2006. Advancing her field experience, she auditioned for and earned a spot on the fifth season of Bravo TV's hit show, Project Runway. Throughout the season, Kato's primary signature for her high color and diversity in style and presentation, in addition to her feisty spirit, resonated well with audiences, earning her the prize of fan favorite and ultimately a placement of first runner-up at the season's close. The Kato Momolu brand has over the years expanded to include creating an accessory line for Dillard's Incorporated department stores, producing an eco-friendly jewelry line for the Smithsonian Museum stores, designing the uniforms for the Walton Family Museum Crystal Bridges, serving as the Cheerios ambassador for the ShopRite Partners in Caring, Knockout Hunger Campaign, and contributing her time and talents to countless charitable and philanthropic endeavors. She presently makes her home with her husband and children in Little Rock, Arkansas. It is my pleasure to welcome Kato Momolu. Kato, welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. It's an absolute honor to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. As you may very well know, I'm a huge fan of your spectacular work as a fashion designer and stylist, and I've been keeping up with your career for years now. Your work has blazed 
the path for so many. And it's just such a real pleasure to have you on the show to talk about your journey. As I mentioned to you before, I absolutely love how we're connected with our respective Canadian, Ottawa, and United States, Little Rock, Arkansas roots. Long story short. I know. (laughs) It's a long story short, but when I was living in Little Rock, it was during the 2000s, I think the late 2000s that you were on Project Runway. And of course, the whole city of Little Rock was so proud and rooting for you. And somehow I found Mm -hmm. out that you also had lived in Canada. I was at the Little Rock airport and I saw you and I walked up to you and I introduced myself and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm so proud of you. And also you're from Canada. And then come to find out not only were you from Canada, but you actually lived in Ottawa where I went to high school. And we had like tons of mutual friends. Crazy, crazy. It's crazy we lived there at the same time and never ran into each other. But I was never like a, a talker back then. Like I was really quiet and shy. So like you never would have heard or seen anything about me during that time of my life. Because it's almost like I didn't exist, but I existed. It's like I was doing what I was doing now, like sowing the seeds, I guess. But super duper quiet, shy, introvert, completely opposite from who that person was now. Oh, wow. So before we dive deep into your remarkable career, which I have a million questions about, I'd like to talk about your background. You were born in Liberia and then later relocated to Canada. What was it like growing up in Liberia? It was amazing. You know, I grew up with that village. You know, I watched my parents come from nothing and education was always key, pushing it and just being around an extended family. Like if somebody was cooking for us or washing our clothes or anything related to life, it was a family member, it was an aunt, it was an uncle, it was a cousin. It was, you know, that village that you hear about, you know, it takes a village like it truly was that village that raised me. And we had a good life until, you know, the war started, the civil war unrest and all that started. But, you know, my parents were at a good point financially enough to get us out before anything really happened, my brothers and sisters and I, and that's where Canada came in, because then we got sent to Canada to go to boarding school, and would still return to Liberia during the summer, or Christmas vacations, and then in 1990, that's when all hell kind of broke loose, and it just kind of went haywire from there. And so your whole entire family moved to Canada, specifically Ottawa? Yes, well, I mean, we we have property in the U.S., in North Carolina that we, you know, we were, we owned it, we were paying mortgage on it, but the U.S., and it's important for me to say this because of what's going on right now, the U.S. would not let us in as a family. They wanted to break us up. My brother was a U.S. citizen, so he was the only one that they were willing to take in, and the rest of us were going to have to just kind of figure it out, but Canada took us in as a family because we were already there in school, so that's why we ended up in Canada and not the U.S. That is very timely, and it's interesting because when I was putting together questions, I thought of that, just the relevancy to my experience growing up in Ottawa and all of the different groups coming from around the world. And Canada welcomed them with open arms. Yeah, Rwanda, Sudan. I mean, we were there when all that was happening. So we were right in the midst of, of all of that, you know. So what we're going through right now has been happening for years. You know, my mom literally took my brother in a war zone to the U.S. Embassy and said, he's American, can we come? And they said, we'll take him, call a relative in the States, but you can't go with him. And he was four. So they were okay with taking a four-year-old and just dropping him off wherever or whoever. So she just kind of said, you know, it's in God's hands. If it's meant to be, we'll get through it. And I laughed. So that's what's been happening for years. It's now coming to the forefront, but it hasn't gotten any better. It's getting worse. But as an immigrant, you know, 
I'm thankful for Canada to say, you know, you guys can come here, you can live here, and you can rehabilitate your lives, and you're human beings, and your life is worth something. So big up to Canada. Absolutely. And you felt really supported by the community and the resources that were provided and just kind of like the open yeah. welcome. Yeah, very welcome. Like welcome, not just in the country, but just even with your identity as an African, all those things are welcome. Like they have international days where people from all around the world can celebrate who they are, who their culture, what what they believe in, and it's it's open. And Canadians welcome that, and they're right there supporting by trying the food or trying the culture out, and not making you feel as if you are like this alien or this strange person, you know. And that's what I loved about Canada. It just made you feel like you were home, even though you weren't at home. It didn't make you feel any worse than you already did. I think if we all had a choice as immigrants, we would be in the countries that we grew up in, period. But um, I think there's a misconception that people want to, you know, live here and not where they're from. First choice, you want to live at home. You're happiest at home. But when you don't have a choice and you have parents and you have children, your first choice is you want to give your children a, a chance at life. And that's what I got. I got a chance at life to live a life that, you know, so far has gone, you know, amazingly. But had I not gotten that chance, I don't know where I would be. Nobody would know who I was, this gift would be lost, and so on and so forth. Everything you're saying is so incredibly powerful. I'm often asked what the difference is between my experience growing up in Canada and the United States, especially as it relates to race relations, and you touched on it, but I'm curious, how would you respond to that question? People always say, I don't see color. That's how I felt when I lived there. I felt like I got so used to seeing people from Somalia, from Rwanda, from Czech Republic, from from everywhere. Like everywhere you go, you see a mixture. And it wasn't until I actually met my husband, who's from Little Rock, he started pointing it out every time he was with me he would point it out i'm like that's all you see is like color and black and white but i didn't understand it because you know where i grew up it was a melting pot all your your friends were they could be from trinidad or jamaica from this place or that place but those are just your friends and it just so happens that that's where they were from and those are their cultures we're in the elevator once and he was like do you realize there was somebody from every continent in the elevator I never saw it, but he saw it. He noticed it every time. And it wasn't until I moved to Little Rock that I felt what he felt. And I started seeing him like, now I understand why you think the way you think and why you are the way you are. But it was hard for me because I was in a place where I didn't see that stuff because of where I was raised. You know, being raised in Canada, you don't, certain things don't always come to light. You don't experience things that you experience here in the U.S. It's not so in your face. It's almost like a quick story is one time when I lived in Little Rock, I was working at uh, the historic site. And so I was just about to close for the end of the day. And this super multicultural group came in and I was shocked. I was like, they must be like multicultural in nature because of the organization. But it was actually the American Idols. They were doing a tour and they were performing in Little Rock and they came in. But I remember that so vividly because their the multicultural nature and makeup of their group was like jarring to me because I had been like now immersed yeah. in this black and white world. Exactly. One question that I ask my guests, and I'm so intrigued to know like at what point this awareness came to you. And I, I have air quotes that you can't see, but when I say race, I have air quotes. When is the first time that you became aware of race? Hmm. 
It was actually in Canada, believe it or not. It was a little, I worked at a fabric store in Canada and I, I was a cashier and I gave, it was a Caucasian woman and her five or six year old child. And I gave her her change. And when I opened my hand to actually give her her change, immediately the son said, ooh, your hands are dirty. And I looked at my hands to see if I had dirt on them because I didn't know what he was talking about. I never in my head thought, oh, he means the color of my palms. Because I'm dark-skinned, my palms look darker than the average person. So I looked at my hands. I didn't see anything. And then it hit me what he meant. Like, he just thought because my hands were dark and not light like his, they had to be dirty. And she was flushed. She didn't say anything to correct them. She just kind of got her change and she left. But that was like one of those instances, you know, between that and just being African, being called an African booty scratcher and all that silly stuff. I never really let a lot of that stuff penetrate me because I was confident and proud of who I was as an African person, that nothing anyone could say would make me feel any differently about it. But I think as it relates to black and white, that was one of the experiences that stuck with me. You know, that and then, you know, the random being told to go back to Africa, which, again, I have no problem going to Africa. I love Africa. So that's really not an insult. So if you're trying to insult me, if anyone's listening, telling me to go back to Africa is not going to cut it. Find something else. So that was probably it. Wow. And you were how old when you when that happened? I was about 17, 18. You know, and then being that it happened in Canada, it wasn't, like I said, I was, it was kind of shocking a little bit, but then it was like, people are everywhere. You're going to have racist people everywhere. Or um, in that sense, I really didn't look at it as race, but it was a race issue because this young child probably was not around anyone other than people that looked like him. So anything outside of what he knew or saw on a daily basis was abnormal or unnatural. Mm-hmm. And I think when, when you're raising your children and none of your friends as a parent, none of your friends of, of any other race or background, and all they know is this one Caucasian world, without even realizing it, you're, 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 you are in a sense creating racism because you're not exposing them to anything other than who you are. So I have I have friends who are Indian, I have friends who are white, I have friends who are African, I have friends from the islands, I have friends from a range of places because I lived in Canada. So my children are around different people at all times, so they never feel as if somebody's strange when they meet them. And I think that's important as a parent, especially now that we're adopting African-American kids. That's fine, that's great, but if you don't have any friends out of the African-American community and you're raising a black child... That's a problem because that child is going to have a problem when they grow up. It's a little point to put up. I have several examples from Canada and the United States where I either have friends or have old people who have challenges as people of color who are adopted by white families. What was your initial inspiration for becoming a designer? I've always been an artist. That's something that I've just always done my whole life. The whole part about being a designer didn't come around until high school. Um, Like I said, I was really quiet in high school, junior high, elementary, never spoke, but I excelled in the arts, and that's where I became, like, a completely different person. And my art teacher at the time, she saw that in me, and she saw where I was going with it. I started drawing clothing all of a sudden, and I was more interested in drawing dresses and fabric. And she said, I think you're going into fashion design. So she actually mentored me and helped me create a portfolio for design school, which was Ryerson, which was in Toronto. 
And that's basically how that whole idea came about. But then once the war happened in Liberia, my parents lost all their money. We pretty much, you know, we came into the country as refugees and I graduated at that time. So, you know, my whole life I've been told I'd go to college. It was never a question. So now I finally get to apply to the top design school in the country and I couldn't go because we didn't have the money. So my mom actually would take my sketchbook and just show it to different people when she volunteered. Because when you come in the country, you can't work. So she'll volunteer a lot at a different, all these different places. And there was a lady at our church that saw my sketchbook and I wasn't there, but she just, based on what she saw, she said that she would pay for me to go to design school. So that's how I became a designer through that gift and that blessing. A white woman, I'll say that, you know, I just always say these things, but people always Everybody's not evil. You know, there are some good people on all sides, but it was a complete stranger, a white woman, where African refugee family saw something in a book and believed in me more than I believed in myself at the time because I gave up on, you know, the dream of being a designer. So she paid for me to go to design school, and, I mean, she helped us immensely through that whole refugee process. Without her, we probably wouldn't even be here, honestly. That is so heartwarming. That is truly beautiful. I'm so glad to hear that. Then you went off to design school. Yes. Went to school. Um, it was a little bit more challenging than I thought because obviously the artistic part of it, drawing was always my top skill. Sewing was something I had to develop. It proved to be a little bit tougher for me. I got written up quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but in the end, you know, upon graduating, you know, I placed in the top three of my class, but it was it was not even based on my sewing abilities. It was based on my style and what these industry professionals felt were things that could be, you know, taken seriously in the fashion industry in Canada. And that to me meant everything. And no one in my class expected that to happen because, like I said, I was always at the bottom as it pertained to sewing and all that. So that was my little leaf to just keep pushing and keep trying. And I just would just self-teach myself how to sew. So I got the job at the fabric store and I would help customers and in helping them, it would help me. And I just kind of kept working on it and getting better with it. And eventually I actually started teaching a sewing class for refugees that were also coming into Canada still. My mom opened up a business that would help other refugee women to gain skills where they could get jobs. And that was one of the courses that she taught was fashion design. So that was my first real job. I mean, I knew your story was remarkable, but I am sitting here like in awe. We have some stories. I mean, it's, it's the makings of you, you know what I mean? It's things that happen that you just thankful you were raised by the right parents because not everybody could go through everything I've gone through and still be standing and being their right sound mind. Mm -hmm. I think growing up, although we have money, my parents never let me feel like we had money. We still shopped at Kmart or wherever, you know, like my mom always acted like we were, we were poor. So we never felt like, oh, we're entitled. We always knew that the sacrifices they made for us to have things were sacrifices. So they were just working hard to provide for that. It wasn't until, you know, later in life that we realized that my dad had a great position in the government and, you know, we had status, but we were never raised to feel that way or make anybody else feel that way about us. And I think that's what helped get through that time, you know? Definitely. One of the themes that comes up in every conversation that I have is representation. So I'm curious about who you looked up to in the fashion industry and did you feel like there was representation? Oh, definitely. Like when I was in school, um, in the pattern books, I would always see like patterns from 
Tracy Reese, and especially a designer called Byron Lars, who are African-American. They went to Parsons, and it was just cool for me to see images of people that look like me, and their stuff were in the pattern books, where you could actually pick a pattern made by them, and I was like, wow, you know, I could actually do this. It's very important, you know, like, one of my favorite designers is Donna Karen, who doesn't look like me, but she's a woman, so I mean, it was, it was on all different levels, not even just so much what they look like, the fact that they're women as well, because the industry is filled with male designer, period. We're the minority. So to have a female designer that was focusing on what I was wanting to focus on, which is, you know, the shape of a woman and the quality of clothing, the thick curves. She was one of the very first pair of jeans I bought were Donna Karen jeans and it fit my body. It didn't make me feel inferior or just, you know, how it is sometimes when you just a little bit curvier than the next girl, but you can't seem to find anything to fit you because of, you know, X, Y, Z. Really important to me. I mean, from the outside looking in, how important your presence and your work is to young people coming behind you. So you went to school and when did you first move to the United States and why? Okay, so we initially first moved to the United States when I was about four years old. And it was really purely for my mom to go back to school and get her degree. And then um, that's when we moved to Boston. And then um, we moved back to Liberia after and ended up moving to North Carolina, to Dora. We lived there for like two years. And I'm not really even sure what that move was about, but we did. It could have been something political. We were just too young to understand it. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, Moved back to Liberia. We were actually set to be in Liberia for the rest, you know, rest of our days. And then that's when the, the civil unrest started. We ended up moving to Canada. Fast forward past design school and all that happened. Um, after teaching with my mom and going through that, I met this guy in uh, Fort Drum, New York. And we started dating for two years. And when he got out of the Army, he's like, you know, I'm going to go back home. And home was Little Rock. So we did the whole long distance thing. And this is, you know, this is when like literally AOL was like popping <laughs> hotmail. Yep. Face, right. Facebook message. was uninvented. Yeah. I don't even think MySpace was invented yet. You know, so this is like back when you were still writing letters and maybe getting the phone card to call that was expensive and thousand dollar phone bills. So I was like, okay, something has to give. I'm going to go down here and check it out and see what's going on and uh, try to make it work. And here I am, 20 years later. Wow. In Little Rock. What was your experience when you first moved to Little Rock? Well, (laughs) it was cool when I was visiting. And then I think once it sunk in that I was going to live here, because I actually moved to Atlanta and I was going to design school because I thought I had to go back to school and just get refreshed. And then halfway through, I realized that I was wasting my time and my money. So I left for Christmas break and came to Little Rock. And it was during that Y2K scare. And me and my husband were like, okay, we're just going to do it. We're just going to get married. So we literally got married New Year's Eve, 1999. And I think once it sunk in that I lived here, I started feeling like it was slow death because there was nothing here. And I, there was nothing I could relate to. There was no one that acted like me. I was just always like the weirdo, the one that talked funny. And, you know, every time I said something, it was, where are you from? Because I was very Canadian at that time. 
A and you know all about just everything <laughs> Canadian about me was popping and it was just always like I felt like a spectacle so it was tough you know at one point I think two years in I left for like six months because I just had to go so I couldn't breathe and I moved to New York with a friend just to take like some courses at Parsons and just to be around you know what I felt artistically was where I needed to be. How did you feel your artistic soul in Little Rock? There was nothing. I felt like I was dying. Like, I literally felt that way. That's the only way I can explain it to people. Like, I felt like my life was over and I made the wrong mistake. I loved this guy, but I hated where he was from and I did not want to be here. And he was just like, you are at the point in life where you can basically turn everything around in your favor, but you have to believe that it can happen. Like I said, I just kind of did it just to prove him wrong. (laughs) Just to say, well, yeah, I tried it and it didn't work. Now what? When are we moving? You know, type situation. Were you like thinking of, okay, I can design from home? Actually, I was going to have a show. I was going to do a show and I was going to launch my line. So I had a show. I had a, at that time, I actually started meeting people that were in my field for some reason. You know, I always tell people that like, sometimes you have to put it in the universe what you want and God will bring it to you. And until you do, he's not going to move if you don't make a move, you know. And that is so true because I I just prayed. I was like, God, if it's meant to be, show me some signs, bring me people and let me fly because I want to be here. But I don't want to sacrifice this gift that I feel like I have. And I just started meeting people. That's when I met the whole poetry crew. I started meeting people at Medium, which was a spoken word joint where artists would go. And just through that group right there, you know, started talking about what I was doing. And all of a sudden, I wasn't weird anymore. I was like a part of this group of people that existed and were all looking for a place to voice who they were and what they do. And we literally all combined together and supported each other. I had my show, I had some live music and just really did it the way I wanted to do it, New York Fashion Week style. And a friend of mine who was helping knew the editor at the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, which is the top paper here in Little Rock, invited her to the show. And she literally loved everything and gave me like this big coming out party in the sense of a written article. And it was in a Sunday paper, I'll never forget. And it literally changed my life. Overnight, I just went from being this girl from Arkansas by way of Canada to this designer. And it literally just kind of took off from there. Like everything started coming together, started meeting more people. There was a place called the art scene that was developed. And that's actually when I got into making jewelry. So it really was just dots were connecting and just putting things into the atmosphere and being fearless about being who I was and just being unapologetically me. It was a breath of fresh air because I think so many other people wanted to do what I was doing, but there was no outlet. And just like me, they didn't want to be the brick layer. They wanted to just walk the path. So I think after I literally started hand by hand laying those bricks, I got a few others helping and we just really have developed into a great city with some artistic things going on that otherwise wouldn't have been going on as the sacrifices hadn't been made. That is so cool. And it's also kind of insane because everything that you mentioned, like mediums, like I'm friends with Jimmy Sheffin, like all of that, like the emergence of culture and art in Little Rock. When I first moved there, kind of like you described, it was completely desolate. Like the River Market District, yeah. is not even exist. Yeah. So let alone like a 
young artists to converge and get together and express each other. Yeah. I'm just so happy that you finally found something that kind of fed your, you know, your thirst. Yeah, and thankfully, I'm kind of sad thankfully. Because I'm like, how did we miss each other? <laughs> I know, we missed each, each other for later. like a long time. So you describe yourself, self-describe, like weird or whatever. And I'm like, well, I was the other weird one across town. <laughs> We totally didn't even know, and which is crazy because I think I told you this when I met you that one of my friends from Canada played your mom in the documentary on PBS. I had not remembered that until this second, but now that you mentioned, I totally remember that, and I cannot like the serendipity and just the totally crazy connections. That's insane. That's insane. Yeah, and when we got married, she came to the wedding. She actually came to the wedding. She sang at the wedding, and she met up with your aunt. My husband actually took her to your aunt's house, and they talked and took pictures. She took them to Central, and I mean, it's just crazy. We just never met. We were meant to meet until later in life, I guess, because all that happened. Yeah, that's that's quite amazing. <laughs> wow, so you moved to Little, uh, you finally found your community. You had that big write-up in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and then that was kind of like a launch. And then, I mean, I don't want to skip fast forward if there are many parts in between, but Project Runway. You were first runner-up on the fifth season of Project Runway. Like, that actually didn't come too far. After I did that first show, got that write-up, I did about probably two more shows after that. And that's when Project Runway had just literally launched. And my daughter was four. Actually, she was not, actually, she was younger, probably about two when the show actually aired. And I just remember thinking, wow, I remember actually watching the show, breastfeeding her, like, I hope this is still around when she's old enough so I can go on this show. Super duper fan, watched it, fourth season. I just happened to be rolled and it said, do you have what it takes? Do you want to be on Project Runway? I was like, oh my God, yes. So I talked to my husband, he was okay with it. Daughter at the time, like I said, was four, but she was okay. Um, and I just went for it. I got a couple of friends. And we went to New York, got them dressed. Instead of actually taking clothes, I actually have live models, fully dressed, hair and makeup. Because I just wanted to give it everything I had because I just don't take rejection. So I'm going to give them everything I got. And if they don't want me, I'll have no regrets about it. I gave them who I was. And that was that. So made it through the first round. And there were like 3,000 rounds after that. But made it all the way on the show. Actually, what got me on the show, I really believe, was not just my talent. But there was a time where we went to L.A. And there was the top 25 contestants were there. And they asked, like, what was the worst thing that ever happened to you? And I just remember going back to that story about getting into Ryerson in Canada and not being able to go because we didn't have the money. And just being so devastated and thinking, like, my life as a designer or artist was over. And then this complete stranger, you know, gifted me, you know, that gift back. She gave it back to me. I had never spoke of that story until that day. I didn't realize I just had all those emotions in me. Like, I just, I started crying. Everybody was crying. Like, oh, my God, it's not going to put me on this job. And I'm just a drama queen now. But I think it gave them an insight as to who I was and how bad I wanted it, my resilience. and. I think that's what got me casted. That was the final. If there was anything that was lacking on me, that was it. And they wanted to tell that story. It was important to them to tell that story. And because of that story, you know, even though I didn't win, it, it literally did change my life because I gave so many other little brown girls, but especially African girls, 
refugee girls, immigrant girls who felt like their life was over because they were in the U.S. or in another country and not their home, that they had to give up their dream. And me at 33, married with a kid doing it, it kind of let them know that it's not over until God says it's over and you can get up right now and do it because I'm doing it because it just gave me that faith. And it sustained my career. Like, it's been about 12, 13 years since the show, and I'm still working based on that experience on that show. So win or lose, I still won because I'm still standing. I'm still doing amazing things based on that quote-unquote air quote loss. So moving. They loved you. Absolutely loved yeah. you. I mean, still do. You're all over the place. There are people, designers who stand out in your mind, like, instantly when you hear Project Runway, and you are definitely at the top of that. And so... Also, what you're showing girls coming after you. And you know what I've always noticed? I had the pleasure of attending one of your shows at New York Fashion Week, which was two years ago. It yeah. was spectacular. But whether I was in Little Rock or whether I was just seeing you from afar on social media, on the internet, or in person at New York Fashion Week or whatever, you, like, bring the whole family. Like, you represent Little Rock so hard. I know this is... A, interesting analogy but it's like when bill clinton went from little rock to the white house he took little rock with him and i feel like yeah you really built this strong community and i look up and i see all of your models are from little rock or many of them and i just think that's so amazing of you i mean these people like literally embraced me right i felt that love like when i came back from the show and this is like in the last few weeks of the show where we get to come home and do our collection, people don't know who's in the final. Like, my close friends knew, but they were kind of secrecy. So people are watching, and they're seeing you be on the top, be on the bottom, crying, and everybody's freaking out. And it was a lot to handle. But I remember I did this show for Harvest Fest in Hillcrest, and um, I carried some stuff in the store there called Box Turtle. And I just remember getting on that stage that night, and, like, people were, like, standing on top of, like, the roof of the buildings. And the love that I felt that night, that was just like, wow, I'm doing this not just for me, not just for African girls. I'm doing this for everybody here who got put into that box, like, oh, you're from Arkansas, you can't be worthy of anything, your country, your this, your that. And I just felt like I was going to represent for them the way they were representing for me that night, just showing me love. Like, they didn't care if it was announced it was the winner. To them, I won. Like, I got my own day in Little Rock, you know? So that stuff like that, you don't just look at that stuff lightly. Like, this is home. When I say I'm going home now, because I've lived so many different places, from Boston to North Carolina to Canada, you know, when I first moved here, Canada was home, but now being here all these years and making friends and roots and having children, like, this is home, you know? And it's hard to think of anywhere else as being home anymore because I feel like I belong here. I don't feel like I'm just a visitor anymore, you know, somebody coming through and might be leaving soon. Like, this is home. And you rep for home and you show people what they may not get to see of your home. Like, I was the very last visit the Project Runway crew did because they were dreading coming here. And I remember they did my um, interview with Tim when he came here at Park on the River in Montmel, just overlooking the, the water and just that beautiful scenery. And they were like, this place is beautiful. I was like, exactly. And they were like, we didn't want to come here. We we're like avoiding coming here. That's why we made you the last stop. But they're like, we get it. We get why you're here. And I just wanted them to see that. Because I think there's a judgment. As soon as you say Arkansas, people look at you crazy like, yeah, Arkansas, what are you doing down there? Living, you know, doing the same things. We had a president from here, for God's sake. We have so many 
great people from here, big names that are derived from here. And then I start, you know, name dropping and like, what? All that's from Arkansas? Like, yeah, all that's from Arkansas. But, you know, you want to change the, the myths and the misconceptions and you just want to show people that it doesn't matter where you're at. It just matters where you're going. You are an extraordinary ambassador. I mean, you have so many different like angles and vantage points that you represent. Like you're such an awesome embodiment of like your calling and your purpose. So after Project Runway, you carried on. You said your career is still soaring high. You're doing amazing things. Can you give me a snapshot of what you're up to today? So now, you know, I have a 15-year-old starting high school, a five-year-old starting kindergarten all in the same month, and I'm getting ready for Fashion Week in New York again, and this time something a little different. I recently did a launch of athleisure wear for a group called Women Grow, which are the top women cannabis leaders in the country. So they own dispensaries or um, they own cannabis products. But there are a force of 300 plus women who um, are the driving force of this industry right now. And they hired me to create a line, launched it in June, sold out, everything went awesome. And they wanted to actually take that initiative and go to Fashion Week and launch there. So I'm working on the collection to launch this line at Fashion Week. You know, women in cannabis, women helping other women designers. Um, they could have chose anybody, but... I'm thankful and grateful that, once again, my story and them watching me all these years and seeing my growth, they want to propel my business and then helping them, you know, shine will help me shine. So that's what I'm working on now, just thinking of my retirement, thinking about, you know, possibly starting my foundation and things I want to do in the future. I want to work smarter now, not harder. And I've done a gazillion fashion shows. So now I'm just being picky about the things I do that take me away from being at home. You know, I want to be home with my kids. I want to be there when they need me. And I want to be there for my family, but still doing what I love, but not grinding so hard. Leave that up for the, you know, the next generation that I've built that yellow brick road for. You know, it's time for them to step up and maybe mentor some of them to take over the reins and, you know, and just keep things going here in Arkansas. That's awesome. And when I saw on your website, High Fashion Meets the World of Cannabis, I was like, yes, that is so cool. We're launching at Fashion Week and then, I mean, it's pretty much a go. It's just going to be something that we're going to continue this is the first, you know, line of its sort to, you know, hit the runways in New York. So it should be exciting and different and just show show what I have, you know, show the other side. It's great when you can be a designer and be creative in all aspects of design instead of just one way. And I think it's appreciated when you can do something and people can appreciate it. Because one thing about fashion, all women either love fashion or they hate it because they can't embrace it. So I think we're doing it in a way where it can be embraced by different women of different ages, sizes, shapes, and all for one thing to promote and break down the stigma of cannabis. Sweet. Congratulations. Thank you. I felt like I had a broad understanding of your journey and work, but now I'm even more invigorated, excited, and inspired. Can you please tell our listeners where they can find you, your website, social media, where they can buy your gorgeous jewelry, designs, and anything else you want us to know? You can go to katomomalu.com, K-O-R-T-O-M-O-M-O-L-U.com. I'm also on Etsy, Katomomalu Original. That's the name of my shop. 
if you're in Little Rock, check out Love's Boutique in the River Market or Box Turtle in the Heights. And I'm just pretty much everywhere. Hit me up on Instagram and follow my story, the journey. Um, I'm very pretty much an open book. I'm really relatable and down to earth. And what you see with me is what you get. I'm the same person you'll meet twice. So if you're out there dreaming, quit dreaming, start speaking it. Take it out of your head because it's just a fantasy. Speak it and let the universe, let God help you. He's just waiting on you to make the first move. And until you do, it's just going to be a fantasy. But just get out there and do it. Life is so short, too short for daydreaming. Get out there and make your dream happen and live it out loud. It is possible. It's doable. I'm a testament of that. Amen. I feel like I've been to church that is so beautiful <laughs> no because it's like it's just as relevant to anybody listening as it is to me in my life so i thank you very much kato what are the roots of your spirit oh my gosh i think for me honestly the roots of my spirit is is just joy and joy in every aspect of the word, joy in what I do every day, joy in the people that are around me, feeling joy, receiving it, giving it. So I think when you have joy in your heart, you can easily forgive, you can easily move on, you can just enjoy this life and appreciate it because it truly is a gift. And it took a long time to get there to figure that out, but it has to be joy because without joy, you have nothing. Absolutely beautiful. I can't thank you enough. I'm just radiating with gratitude. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, girl.